Well, so today we continue our series entitled, My Servant Isaiah. Now, I took that title from Isaiah 20, verse 3. It's the only time it appears in the whole book. And one of the things that I'm very aware of is that Isaiah has 66 chapters. And I'm sure you're aware that it's like a microcosm of Scripture itself that has 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New And it just so happens that Isaiah divides the same way. 39 chapters speak of the historical sins and problems and judgments that the Lord prophesied against uh, Judah and sometimes, as today, against the northern kingdom of Israel. And then when you get to the last 27 chapters of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 40, you find the emphasis is more on grace and comfort, comfort my people, uh, just uh, many encouraging things. In my study, I can't hardly wait till we get to chapter 40 (laughs) because it's so much more applicable, it seems like. It's so much more encouraging. But we're not there yet. Uh, I feel like you know, we're not in Kansas anymore, right? Uh, we're, we're, we're in some stuff here that is not easy. But we are going to look for the Lord to speak to us through His Word. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to allow the Lord's Word to speak to us and look for principles that we can apply. Now, as you remember... Isaiah was a prophet of the Lord who primarily ministered to the southern kingdom of Judah. And you know all about the divided kingdom, Judah in the south, Israel in the north. You've got to keep that in your mind. And sometimes Israel is called Ephraim. Sometimes he's called Jacob. Uh, sometimes Israel is referred to as the bride or the wife of Yahweh. Sometimes used in the feminine as a she But um, as Isaiah was called primarily to speak to Judah, the passage here is addressed to the northern kingdom. Remember the context of this prophecy reaches back to chapter 7 when Israel and Syria were threatening Judah and Judah's king Ahaz was quivering in his boots. Remember that? That was the backdrop of Isaiah 7.14 and the promise about the child that would be born of the virgin. Ahaz had made an alliance with Assyria to combat the alliance against him formed by Syria and Israel. That was a huge mistake on King Ahaz's part as well as a colossal failure of faith. Israel in the north, too, was at fault. Not only was Judah at fault for making an alliance with a foreign nation, but Israel had done the same thing with Syria. Israel had long ago abandoned their trust in Yahweh and turned to gross idolatry. Israel, the northern kingdom, was soon to fall at the hands of Assyria. But even before that, the northern kingdom was being squeezed by Syria and Philistia. And it's referenced in this passage. Israel would suffer so much at the hands of Syria and Philistia and then later fall to the Assyrians who would run over their land and carry them away captive in 722 B.C. 
And don't forget, too, that Assyria also came down to the southern kingdom and ravaged much of it, except for Jerusalem. And so there is a lot of sorrow ahead from this point where Isaiah is speaking. Remember that Yahweh, the true God, sometimes we call him Jehovah, but I I like Yahweh. I like that name. It's a little closer to the Hebrew. Yahweh allowed Syria to turn against Israel. And so God actually used ungodly nations to chasten his people. Now you know that. Many of you have heard that many times. But as we think about this today, the Lord has many instruments at his disposal to chasten and to correct his people. Remember, he's not so much interested in punishing the ungodly. They're going to get their due at the final judgment. What God is concerned about is you and me, his people, that we walk with him in holiness, that we strive after him in faithfulness, that we worship him out of a pure heart. That's what he's after. And so I want to remind you today, the Lord has many instruments at his disposal to correct you. And so this passage before us that begins in Isaiah 9-8 and goes through chapter 10, verse 4, reveals four ways that God chastens his people. That's my sermon. Four ways that God chastens his people. And I remind you that these are written for our admonition. First of all, the Lord brought judgment against Israel through foreign enemies. And I want us to stop and think about that as we attempt to apply it to our own situation and how we should apply Old Testament texts. Secondly, the Lord brought judgment against Israel by removing their leaders. Thirdly, the Lord brought judgment against Israel by allowing evil to spread And finally, the Lord brought judgment against Israel through unjust policy makers. Does that sound familiar at all in our culture? Well, this is what the text says. This is not me. This is exactly what Isaiah is saying to us today. So let's work our way through those four ways that God chastens his people and then see what can we take from this to apply to our lives today, and what's going to help us walk with the Lord in holiness. So first of all, the Lord brought judgment against Israel through foreign enemies. We're looking at Isaiah 9-8, and remember, there's no real break here from the previous context. It's continuing. Remember verses 6 and 7, "...for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given." You know, we spent a lot of time on Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 of the increase of his government. There's coming uh, a Messiah who will be God and who will have a perfect kingdom. But in the meantime, verse 8, the Lord has sent a word against Jacob. And it goes on to clarify, and it will fall on Israel. In other words, Jacob equals Israel, and we know that the two names of the man who God used to um, bring forth the people that he has called after his name. 
So we have a word against Jacob. And he uses some other terms here. Israel, Ephraim, Samaria. Samaria was the, the city, the capital of the northern kingdom. And so all this is referring to the northern kingdom. Don't miss that. Remember, Isaiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom. But here, he addresses the north. Why? Because God told him to. God said to. I want you to say this. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob. In other words, wake up, people, and hear what God says. And notice the last part of verse 9. He, the Lord sent a word to the people who, the last part says, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart. This was the problem. Pride and arrogance are the sin that are addressed right here. Pride and arrogance are sins that God hates. What does Proverbs 6 say? Six things God hates. Yea, seven are an abomination. First one, a proud look. God hates that. Now, could any one of us be guilty of that? I'm not guilty of that, am I? You know, do you ever think like that? Oh, it's so easy, isn't it? I didn't do that. I didn't have that attitude. And I, I want you to know I'm speaking to myself. Now, you notice the next thing that comes up in verse 10. And a lot of times, remember, Isaiah used a lot of poetry, a lot of figures, and he used a lot of words, you know, lots of words to say what he wants to say. But notice what he says in verse 10. The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. About 10 years ago, there was a book that came out called The Harbinger. And it was a very sensational book written by a, a Jewish author. And this is one of the texts that he kind of took and applied it to what happened in our country in 9-11. And he really took a lot of scriptures and kind of twisted them around, in my opinion, to try to say things that... He, he, he gave us a very good example of how not to handle the Word of God, is what he did, okay? You don't take scriptures and twist them and, and insert meaning into them, and that's what he was doing. But I remember reading the book, and at the first reading I was like, whoa, whoa, what is he saying here? And they really, it took me a while to sort it out the way he wrote. But here's one of the things that he, he kind of grabbed on. The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. And the idea was, you know, the towers came down in 9-11, but we're going to rebuild a better building. Have you ever been to New York City to see that? We went to New York City and I stood there at ground zero where most of the rubble had been cleared away. But man, I could not get over what a small, seemingly small amount of space it was. I, I pictured this as a massive blocks and blocks and blocks, you know, it was like a city block and a real small one, in my opinion. And then right across the street was a church. The church where George Washington was sworn in as president, you know. And, and the writer of that book made a big deal of how God didn't let all the rubble fall and, and hit the church. That was interesting, but I don't know what we can draw out from that. But he was looking at this text. The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dress stones. In other words, 
Our sun-dried bricks are gone, but we're going to replace them with expensive hewn stones. And he says, our sycamores, the common tree, cut down, but we're going to replace them with costly cedar. The point is, it was prideful. Instead of saying, God has allowed our enemies to invade us and bring this, instead of getting on our knees and praying, oh God, we repent of our sins, the attitude was, oh, we're bigger than this. We're not going to st- be stopped by this. And we'll, they tear down our building, we'll make, a bit, we'll make a better one. And there were a lot of people maybe that had that attitude because they weren't uh, looking to God. It's interesting that God can use foreign nations to chasten his people. You notice what he says in verse 11. But the Lord raises the adversaries of Rezin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. What is he saying? Well, verse 11, remember who is Rezin? Well, Rezin is the king of Syria, right? Reference back in chapter 7. One of the ones that was kind of uh, provoking Ahaz and trying to get Ahaz of Judah to go with him and the son of Remaliah. Remember that? Uh, Pekah. And so Rezin, representing Syria, was facing Assyria and he was afraid and so he made this alliance with the northern kingdom. They never should have done that. And now God is saying, uh, the person that your cohort worried about is going to be your problem too. Syria is your problem, and the bigger problem, Assyria, is also going to be your problem. And so he mentions these historical things, and he brings in, and don't forget, there's the Philistines on the west. We're not going to take time to look at it, but Second Chronicles 28.18 references the Philistines raising up during the time of Ahaz. And so that's an important passage uh, for this context. And then please notice the last part of verse 12. And as I read this, I tried to emphasize it, and I hope that you caught this, because you know these sections, some scholars call them strophes, because they're written in like poetic paragraphs. And when you, read, when you study the Old Testament, you do want to look for little cues like this, that help to understand what's going on. And so you notice this phrase, the end of verse 12, in the ESV it reads like this, For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Now look down at the end of verse 17. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Look at the end of verse 21. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Look at chapter 10, verse 4. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. That's how I put this sermon together. Because those little clues helped us to see this is a section that goes together that God is saying something, and he keeps coming back, pounding this point, I've allowed all this chastening. I've produced this wrath that I'm allowing to hit my people, but it doesn't do any good. 
My people are so dull. Have you ever met anybody like that? An individual? Where you talk to them and you feel like you're talking to a brick wall? Have you ever been through that? As a pastor, I've been through this so many times, trying to help someone with their problems. I can see what the problem is. I can see what the answer is. But they don't want to know that. They don't want to know what the problem is. They certainly don't want to change and correct it. They would much rather you would just tell them what they want to hear. You know, it's wearisome. It's wearisome to go through that. And that's exactly what the Lord is saying to the northern kingdom. I'm showing you you're in deep trouble, but you're not listening. And therefore, his hand is stretched out still. He's not done yet. Now, beloved, I, I could give you personal examples in my life where, you know, I have sinned and it took me a little while to figure it out. And then the Lord says, you know, David, wake up. You've got to make a change in your life. Has anybody else ever had that? Where you realize, man, I'm going the wrong way here. I'm looking for the wrong thing here. And you've heard me say many times, I want to keep a short list with God. I don't want to have a closet with skeletons in it. I don't want that. I don't want to stand before the Lord and have him bring up something. You know, what will, the, what will the judgment seat of Christ be like? Well, 1 Corinthians 3 tells us our lives will be tested whether they've been built on wood, hay, and stubble or on gold and silver and precious stones. 1 Corinthians 3 was written only to believers, not to unbelievers. And that our lives will be tested by fire and only what survives the fire is going to last. Now, we're not going to be tested to see whether we're saved or not. We're going to be tested for how we've lived our lives. And the Bible also makes it very clear, unconfessed sin is a serious problem before the Lord. And I want to confess, do you? And when I bring, you know, we're not having the Lord's table today, but next week, I want, when I come to that Lord's table, I want to be confessed. And I don't know about you, but my list just keeps being added too. Oh, I got another one here, Lord. I'm sorry. I'm, it was wrong. What is confession, by the way? To say the same thing. That's what it is. Why does God bring chastening? Because we're dull. We don't want to listen. And that's what he's saying. Listen, people. I'm squeezing you with the enemies, the foreign nations. You need to get on your knees and pray. You know, one of the vivid memories of my childhood... You know, I was born in 1957, so you can figure that out. But uh, I remember a lot of things in the early days. I remember when John F. Kennedy was shot. I remember where I was. I was just a little kid, because that was November 22nd, 1963. So I was coming up on six years old. But I remember that. And I remember sitting in front of the television, watching Jack Ruby shoot the guy that shot John F. Kennedy because it was on live television. I was sitting there as a little kid. I, I, we stayed home from kindergarten that day. <laughs> I was in kindergarten. And I saw that on television. I remember my mom going, what? And, you know, I, re- I remember that stuff. 
Some of you remember it better than I do. I remember uh, some men from our church, young men, went off to Vietnam. And that bothered my dad. And my dad said, we're going to get on our knees and pray for them every night. One of them, his name was Don Barris. There was a family that had five brothers and a couple of sisters, and they all stayed in the church. They were all Hungarians. They were, I grew up with all of their kids and stuff. But uh, this one guy, Don Barris, went off to Vietnam. And we heard that his vehicle blew up, but he survived. I can remember my dad saying, we're going to get on our knees tonight and pray for the boys in Vietnam. We did that every night for years. And I'm telling you, we did not miss. That's the way my dad was. We didn't miss. We didn't miss. Take the Bible, old Schofield Bible, we wore them out until the, the covers fell off, and we would read the Bible, and then my dad would say, get on your knees. We're going to pray. Later on, I figured out, after so many years, he started thinking, if this thing doesn't stop, David's going to go. And when the, um, you know, there was a draft, and I remember, I turned 18 in 1975, and that's when the war ended. But I probably there was no one more relieved than my dad. So I never served, but I, I honor you guys that did. You know, Think about how many things have happened in our country that should make us be humble before him. I remember when Martin Luther King was shot. You remember that? 1968. And Bobby Kennedy in a very short time later, 1968. You remember that? Some of you do. This was a time of unrest. And I think I've told you this before, but I, I would go to school in the inner city in Akron, and I'm telling you, it was... It was rough because there were people that were just angry. It was rough. And I think back on that. God had his hand on me. And I've told you a lot of stories, you know. There was one incident where I was the victim. And the police had to come to my house and deal with it. And everybody in my neighborhood thought I was dead. They took up, uh, they started taking up money for flowers for my family. But I wasn't dead. I guess you figured that out. <laughs> but you know, when you go through some of those times, and I, I just think back, I remember when um, President Nixon was forced to resign, 1974. I was in high school. And every day in that summer, it was on the, you know, the television all day long with the Watergate scandal trials. Remember that? And our country was in bad shape back then. And the morale was bad. Even the vice president got kicked out. <laughs> Remember that? And they chose another vice president who wasn't even elected, Gerald Ford, who then became president the first guy who never got elected to be the president. And we were watching all that stuff happen. 
Why do I tell you all this? For one thing, God is very long-suffering. Do you realize that? God is long-suffering. He puts up with so much. He put up with Israel for hundreds of years. United States, we're only 200 and some years old, right? The Lord is long-suffering, but we need to wake up because God may use some foreign nation to cause us to get on our knees. By the way, who's, who's the enemy of the United States right now? Who, what come, who comes to your mind? Russia? They're not our best friends. Uh, have, uh, North Korea? China? Iran? Afghanistan? I mean, we've got some countries that don't like us. There's a lot of people in the world that don't like us. This is, this is the context of what God was saying in this passage. You people wake up. I'm letting the foreign nations come who are ungodly because I want my people to get down on their knees. But you know, that's not all. Notice the next section, verse 13. It says, The people did not turn to him who struck them. That's the Lord nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. And here it is again. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Now that strophe, that section, what is it saying? It's saying that the Lord brought judgment against Israel by removing their leaders. Hmm. Not only allowing foreign nations to squeeze them, but removing their leaders. And the, the proof is right there. He says, the people did not turn to him who, who struck them. The Lord had allowed chastening to come into their lives, and they, they didn't listen. So in verse 14 he says, so he cut off their head and their tail. And I'm so glad he explains this, because if I had to figure out how, how their head and tail got cut off, but... No, it's very easy. The next verse tells us. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. Oh, the Lord brought judgment against Israel by removing their leaders. The elders were their leaders. Remember, the word elder goes all the way back to the time of Moses when he led the children of Israel out. Elder, simply by age and Hopefully wisdom, but other characteristics are needed. Godliness became leaders. He says their elders have lacked honor and their prophets have lacked truth. The Lord had struck them with chastening in one way. That didn't work, so he said, okay, I'm going to start removing the leaders. I'm going to start taking away the strong leadership. The elder is the head, it says, and the lying prophet is the tail. 
And those who guide the people and lead them astray cause the people to be swallowed up. It says in verse 16. Now, we have to be careful, but we know what happened in Israel, right? What kind of leadership did they have? The northern kingdom, did they have good kings? They, had no, they did not have one good king. Every last one of them was bad. And usually, somebody would kill them and somebody else would become king. It wasn't even their son that would follow them. How about the southern kingdom? Did they have any good kings? Yes, they had a lot of good kings because they were in the line of David. Were they all good? No. Some of them were bad, like Ahaz. He was awful. Manasseh was another bad one. But they had some good ones. And yet God was talking to the northern kingdom. I'm going to take away the head and the tail. I'm going to take away the elders, the leaders. I'm going to take away the, the prophets because you've got lying prophets up there and they're leading the people to the wrong way. And here's a really sad thing. Did you catch it in verse 17? Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. Wow. Do you realize what that just said? God, the one who's always the compassionate on children and orphans and widows, he says, I'm not even going to have any compassion on them. Because they're all evil. They're, none of them speaks right. They're all just doing the most wicked things. And so the Lord, who is normally so compassionate, says, I, I don't have compassion on them because of their sins. And then here comes that statement again, the end of verse 17. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand stretched out still. Just try to apply this for a moment to our situation. If you're a student of history, and I know some of you are, I mean, I, I, I read history. That's what my, my pastime is, you know. And you look at some of the great leaders of history and even the ones of our country, and you know, you start studying, you find out they're flawed. They're sinners. They weren't perfect. You know, the early leaders of our country had lots of flaws. But they also had character. And they also had courage. And they also did a lot of things that caused us to respect them and honor them. But as you look around the landscape now, as they search for leaders of our country, what do you see? You see really strong people standing up and saying, you know, I've got a backbone, I'm going to do it. You see that? What do we see? Nobody wants to say, right? <laughs> because I'm not going to say it. But it's weak. I think we tend to forget back in 2019, our president was even impeached, our president at that time. And we need to pray for our country. We need to pray for our, our leaders because one of the ways that the Lord chastens his people is by removing leadership and also removing those who are willing to stand up and say the truth because a lot of people who claim to be leaders and godly are mumbling. They're not telling you the truth. There's a lot of Bible scholars today that are turning away from the Bible think you're a Bible scholar and you don't believe it? It's amazing. Judgment by foreign enemies, judgment by removing leaders, but that's not all. Notice 
We're looking at Isaiah 9, verse 18. The Lord brought judgment against Israel by allowing evil to spread. This is what it says in verse 18. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest. And they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. They devour on the left, but they're not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. T- together, they're against Judah. And then what does he say? For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Here we see again what the Lord allows. that He allows evil to spread in order to drive his people to their knees. He uses some figures here. He says wickedness is like fire. It spreads. It burns. What did uh, James say about the tongue? The tongue is like what? Uh, Like a fire. And the tongue can cause things to spread and evil. That could happen in a church, couldn't it? You know, one of the worst things that can happen in the church is when people spread rumors and say negative stuff about somebody else. That, that's, that's bad. We need to avoid that. What about in our country? What kind of things are being spread today through our media? Good or bad? Truth or no truth? I mean, it's a mixture, right? Remember Satan's uh, masterpiece. Satan never comes out and just tells you blatant lies. Rarely does he ever do that. Satan takes truth and mixes a little bit of error into it. That's his masterpiece. Because he knows you're too smart. If he just tells you a blatant lie, you're going to go, that's a lie. But when he tells you the truth and mixes a little bit of error in there, that's how he hooks you. Watch. And that's what's going on in our country. I would say limit your diet of news. Cut out as much as you can. Just listen to enough to know what in the world's going on, but you know, most of what is being said is going to pull you down. And there's fear, and there's anger, and there's upset. And Satan is delighting in it because he is the author of lies. Israel had become so wicked that she began to consume herself. Some interesting figures here. In verse 20, for instance, they turn to the right for food, then to the left. It's kind of a weird figure, you know, slicing meat on the right but not satisfied on the left, and then devouring your own arm. I mean, you're so hungry, you're chewing on something, and the next thing you realize, you're chewing your own arm because you're so hungry? That's probably not a good idea, right? It's a figure showing People are devouring themselves, and he gives this summary. Manasseh devours Ephraim. Ephraim devours Manasseh. They were brothers, right? They were brother tribes. But together, they want to devour Judah. And what is the mantra? What is the statement that keeps coming up? What is the passage that binds this whole section together four times? For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. I'd like to tell you something about the opposite of somebody who spreads evil. Tomorrow, there's going to be a funeral 
for a dear friend of ours. Her name is Jean Peterson Seitz. This lady is Brett Smith's grandmother. And you know, the Matthews son-in-law is Brett Smith. This lady was part of our church at Perrysville when I, I pastored there at age 26. We had Sarah, and then our two boys were born while we were there. My salary was $150 a week, and we lived in a nice parsonage. But we never had enough money, and we couldn't buy anything. But this Grandma Jean would come to our house with food, with vegetables. She would clothe our kids. She would go to these yard sales and come away with stuff that looked like it was brand new right out of the store. And, you know, we never told our parents. You know, we didn't say, you know, we don't have any money. And I'd already pastored for two years while I worked full-time jobs, and I thought, should I go back and do that? And I didn't want to do that because I wasn't a good pastor when I was working full-time and trying to pastor the church. So I wanted to make it so we were just, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Frugal all the time. But Jean... She was the kind of person that was the opposite of spreading evil. Wherever she went, she was doing good. I want to be like that. She was there the night that uh, Joseph was born. Called her in the middle of the night. We got to go to the hospital. The baby's coming. She came over in her pajamas and took care of our, our Sarah. And she just did that over and over all those years. We were there for six years. There's the opposite of the spreading of evil, and that's doing the right thing, just like what John was teaching about in the class, being a servant. That's what he's called us to do. Well, there's one last thought here. How does God chasten his people? According to chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, he chases his people through unjust policymakers. And, you know, as I was studying this, this kind of jumped off, my, off the page to me. Look what it says in, in Isaiah 10.1. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. And here it is again. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The Lord pronounced a woe against the unjust policymakers. Who are the policymakers? Well, it could be any number of people. It could be the president. It could be the Congress. It could be, you know, in, in this setting, you know, it's the, the king and his advisors and and perhaps some of the prophets and the elders, but those that are in the position of writing policy, of making laws, of making uh, decisions that affect the needy and the poor and the widows and the fatherless, those are the ones who are suffering. And by the way, those are the ones that we're supposed to be taking care of. We're supposed to be looking out for the needy and the widows and the fatherless. That's who we're supposed to be. 
the Lord promised justice on the day of judgment in verses 3 and 4. He says, what, what are you going to do on the day of punishment when there's nowhere to run? The enemy's coming. I'm going to bring my chastening hand down. I've still got my hand up. I'm not done yet. And unless you get on your knees and pray, nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners and fall among the slain. You know, you could come away with this passage. If you just read this passage and then we went home, would you be encouraged? I would read this and go, man, what a downer. Thank you, pastor. You know? Thank you, pastor, for such a negative thing about the judgment that God's going to allow and all this kind of thing. But that's not the end of the story. In fact, the whole point here is to see what God was doing with Israel. Now, we've been saying there's four ways, according to this passage, and it's not exhaustive, but four ways in this passage that God chases his people through foreign enemies, through removing their leaders, allowing evil to spread, and through unjust policymakers. Is this not the most relevant thing you've ever read? I mean, if you're missing the relevancy of this in our culture, then you didn't listen to anything I said today. Reread this. This is exactly what's going on in our country. I've got six principles, so we're not done. But I want to try to drive this home. Principles from the prophet. Number one, Please remember that the USA is not Israel. That's probably the best thing I could tell you today. Don't read the Bible and say, oh, well, that automatically applies to the USA. No, it doesn't. You cannot immediately apply everything that's said to Israel to the USA. So don't do that. However, you may find principles that apply. Because what, we, what do we have in common with Israel? There's a remnant of believers there. And in the United States, there's a remnant of believers. And what about other countries? Remnants of believers. And so this is about how God will handle national and international things and how it affects the, the believers within that country, whether it's the USA or Canada or some other country. Secondly, since God used unbelieving enemy nations to chasten Israel and to turn genuine believers to him by repentance, he may choose to do this with any other nation that has a remnant of believers. That means that God could use a foreign nation to drive us to our knees. Are you ready to get on your knees and pray? Like what my dad would say to us every night of my growing up. I praise God. He's been gone for 42 years I praise God for my dad. I only had him, you know, till I was 22. But what an impact he made on me. Number three, could God use a leadership crisis in the USA to turn Christians toward repentance and faith in the Lord? You think so? Is he doing that right now? In other words, what's happening in the world should not discourage us. It should cause us to say, Lord, I get this. I'm dependent on you, not who's in the White House or who's in Congress, even though I care about those things and I want to be a good citizen of, about those things. Number four, is it correct to say that God has allowed evil to spread in the USA or any nation? I mean, is that correct to say that God allows that to happen? Or is God up there in heaven going, oh my, that's out of control down there. Oh, is that what God is doing? Of course not. He's sovereign over the universe. 
and he's allowing stuff to happen. And we believe that. If, if you don't believe that, then you need to pack up your Bible. God allows evil to spread, and it's happening in our country. It's bad. We need to teach our children. Evil is spreading, but God's still in control, and he's called us to be a light. And there's a lot of positive when you shine the light. We have the opportunity to do good, right? This should not be a negative. We need to turn it to a positive. Number five, since God is the just judge of the universe, will he correct the injustices that we see in our culture? Will he? Well, the question is when? Now? Mm, maybe not. Someday? Oh, yes. The final judgment? Absolutely. But I'll tell you what, he'll do it as he sees fit. We don't know. We don't know when he's going to do it. You know, that's one of the things that really bugs me. One of the things that really bugs me about sports is all the injustice stuff. When money is more important than loyalty. When money is all there is, you know. Sports used to be something, that in my mind, you learned how to be part of a team and you, you were loyal and you worked together. And you know, one of the main things I learned about sports was how to be disappointed. Because usually you end up losing. Have you noticed that? <laughs> usually, that's how it works. I mean, in baseball, you get to swing three times before you go sit down. Finally, number six. Remember that all Scripture is written for our admonition. So we are admonished from this text. And we've got a whole bunch of Isaiah in front of me right now. And we're not going to be going through it exactly the same way when we get to certain parts of it. We're going to do some thematic things, especially when we get to chapter 13, to chapter 23, because it's all the judgments about all the nations. So I'm probably not going to do a, a exegesis of every passage. But we're going to look for the themes and eventually make it to chapter 40. That's where I want to be. <laughs> but we can't skip this other part, right? God is speaking to us. Is, is God speaking to you today through this text? We are exhorted to take it to heart. And all God's people said, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would take it now and cause us to be humble in your sight, to pray for our country, to get on our knees to teach our children that we can do what's right and make a difference in this world. And help us to trust you no matter what. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.